Good morning. We continue in our series through the book of Luke. Uh, Last week we arrived at Luke chapter 23, and you'll want to turn there if you have your Bibles with you this morning. But as we arrived at Luke 23, we saw in pretty surprising detail that Luke has described the conspiracy that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. Essentially, this, this, this pretty sharp level of detail describes this remarkable conspiracy between groups of people who did not cooperate together normally, who were normally opposed to one another, working together to see Jesus, the most innocent man in the history of the world, found guilty and executed alongside common criminals. And when you get to that passage, I mean, well, when I got to that passage, I'm thinking, okay, there's a surprising level of detail describing something here. What does God want us to do with this? What is God's message through this text to this church? What is God's message through this text to the world? How do we apply this? Thankfully, in this particular case, the apostles apply it for us. Not much long after, we see in the book of Acts in chapter 4, a clear application of Luke 23. So we're going to be standing in two different texts today. We're going to see in Luke 23, the trial of Jesus, and in Acts 4, the application of that description. How do we apply these truths? Acts 4 is an interesting chapter. It begins with two guys named Peter and John. Uh, disciples of Jesus, apostles called by Jesus. Begins with those guys headed to the temple, chapter 3. They heal a man, and that healing stirs up quite a response to the point where folks are pretty, pretty, pretty interested in Jesus again. These things come and go as they do. The Sanhedrin, the, the ruling class, the people who tried Jesus uh, back in, in Luke 22, 23, they see Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, preaching in Jesus' name, and, and they're just not going to have it. They're greatly annoyed, it says, at the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrest Peter and John. Now, guys, it's just really important that we keep all of our history together and we kind of remember this chronologically I want you to think about this for a moment. They've just been arrested not many weeks after Jesus had been arrested. And and the arrest begins to appear as if it will unfold in the same way. Verse 3 again in Acts 4. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So John and Peter have been preaching the gospel. They get arrested in the evening, just like Jesus had gotten arrested in the evening by basically the same authorities. And if if you're Peter at this point, this is all especially poignant because you hadn't made it through the front yard the last time, right? So so Peter's betrayal of Jesus happens in the front yard of the the, the ruling people's uh, courtyard. And, and, and Peter now has made it past the front yard. He's actually made it into the house. Uh, he's actually made it into custody. He hasn't denied Jesus so far, far, but now Peter and John must spend the night in prison waiting for what? Waiting for what? They'd just seen their Lord and Savior arrested in a similar fashion, held, and then handed over to be crucified. So imagine just that moment, that, 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 that time where Peter and John are sitting in jail together overnight. What are they thinking about? You know, uh, 
those quiet moments of uncertainty can just tear you up. We're watching this TV series in the Oswald household called Alone. Have you heard about this, Alone? Is it History Channel, Sarah, or is it Discovery, do you know? Discovery. Okay. They're, they're these guys, they get sent out into the wilderness and they have to survive by themselves with no company, nothing. And they just have to survive. And whoever survives the longest wins. I think it's like $200,000. The thing that's interesting about this show is not so much the bears and the wolves and the dysentery and all those sorts of things that you would expect, the, uh, the hypothermia. It's not all that that would, that would short circuit these guys and cause them to give up. It's being alone. It's being, it's being in the, the, the quiet moments of uncertainty. Blaise Pascal once said that uh, all the problems in the world can, can, can come down to man's inability to sit alone with himself in a room. This, this inability to just be still. This inability to kind of sit in uncertainty, in the darkness of uncertainty. And so Peter and John are there, right? They're, they're sitting in the cell of uncertainty. And they, they don't have freedom. They can't make a plan. They can't do anything about this. They just have to wait. Now, this is uncertainty on steroids, right, for them. But I would imagine that many of you either are or have felt this anxiety rising up from the inability to just sit alone with yourself in uncertainty, to just sit alone with yourself in the room. In fact, this, this inability just to be still, this anxiety that seems to seep up whenever you hold still long enough for it to start collecting. And so maybe one of the tricks you use is just to keep moving and keep distracting yourself. Well, Peter and John can't do that. They're sitting in a cell waiting for what will unfold. Now, let me ratchet up the suspense a little bit as Peter and John are waiting for their trial. It's funny how the Bible unfolds itself in the New Testament, especially if you have a physical Bible. I know that's becoming increasingly rare. Uh, if you have a physical Bible, you could just turn to the left, back a little bit, see the very last story in the book that's coming up before Acts, the book of John. And it's a story involving three people. So if you've got your physical Bible, just turn back a couple pages to the book of John, chapter 21. This story at the very end of the book of John involves three people. John, Peter, and Jesus. The very same characters that we see in this cell in Acts chapter 4 that night. This story really is about Peter and Jesus. And Jesus says something to Peter in verse 18 of John chapter 21. Jesus is saying this to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. So now let's. In our imaginations, we've got John and Peter sitting in this cell. Not much longer after this prediction was made by Jesus. This promise, right? Jesus is saying it's going to happen. Peter knows that. Peter's sitting in jail with the understanding that Jesus has told him, one day you will be arrested and taken away and killed. Follow me into that future. 
follow me into that future. Wow. Now, incidentally, as an aside, not really, not really necessary for this particular message, but as an aside, Peter responds to Jesus' prediction with a very predictable a tactic. He immediately asks whether or not this, this difficult future to which he has been assigned is evenly distributed amongst his brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is what you'll do. You will be suffering in a unique way, living in a unique moment of uncertainty. You will feel as if God's calling you to do something exceedingly difficult, and you will look over at your brother or sister and say, well, what about him? He doesn't have it this hard. She doesn't have this difficulty. And that's exactly what Peter does. Peter turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And uh, the one who has leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is this going to betray? When Peter saw him, he said, verse 21, John 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So there's a, I don't, I don't know if I would say it's a tension exactly, but there's a very interesting dynamic in that jail cell in Acts 4 overnight. Because the two people in the story in John 21 are in jail together. And it appears that Jesus has said to Peter, you're going to get killed through circumstances very similar to this. And it appears as if Jesus has said to, about John, maybe you won't. And now they're waiting. And they're sitting in this insufferable uncertainty, this anxiety. This could go terribly. And they have no way of escape. Friends, they don't have TV. They don't have food. They don't have friends. They don't have alcohol. They don't have anything. They have to sit in this uncertainty. What happens? How do they emerge from this? Well, in a very poetic, literary sense, in this particular case, they emerge resurrected in boldness. They emerge from the death of the cell, the death of the dungeon, the darkness. They emerge from that with boldness and light and courage. And so the rest of the chapter of Acts, Acts 4 is actually about Peter and John emerging from all of this uncertainty with confidence and boldness rather than anxiety. Now, I've, I've tried to essentially tell a story that helps you to see the, the biblical, God's, God's biblical trajectory for your anxiety. The trajectory for your anxiety is not comparison. It's not distraction. It's to emerge out of that anxiety into boldness and confidence in God. And how? How does this work? How do we emerge out of anxiety into boldness? How do we sit through uncertainty and walk out the other side with this new kind of certainty, not in our circumstances, but in God? Well... We do that by embracing the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is, seems to be the basic doctrine and power behind Peter and John, both enduring the uncertainty of the cell and also emerging from it with boldness. They have a surprising uh, glimpse or appreciation of the sovereignty of God. Acts 4.24 will be a good place for us to start 
to begin to talk about this, though it's all over the, chap- the, the chapter. Acts 4.24, when they heard it, they, they, Peter and John have stood before the council. They have testified in boldness. They have not shrunk back. They have been bold. They have stood their ground. They've said it's better for us to obey God than man, so on and so forth. They are released from this particular arrest. They don't get executed here. That happens later in, in another way. Uh, they don't get executed here. They get released. They come back to the believers that had been praying for them. And when they had heard the story, when the believers heard the story, Acts 4.24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now this little section is just jam-packed with theology about the sovereignty of God. But let's just kind of break it down and go bit by bit into all of these various aspects of God's sovereignty. And the first one we just say is this, God is sovereign over the sovereigns. That's one area of God's sovereignty that we need to remember. God is sovereign over the sovereigns. You hear that in that passage in Acts 26 or 28, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had and your plan had predestined to take place. Proverbs 21.1 says this way, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it. Wherever he will. God is sovereign over Kim Jong-un and even over Donald Trump. There's a, there's a, I know a number of you listen to talk radio. Friends, I've been listening to talk radio since I was, since I was 16 years old and got, my, got in the car for the first time and turned on the AM radio that I had in my car. And, and for those of you that listen to talk radio, those of you that look, read a lot of news, I want to just, just tell you one simple thing. You, it's, it's possible in a given day at work for you to listen to three-plus hours of talk radio and never hear anyone say, and God is sovereign over all of this. And you may think, you may think that you are clever enough and a mature enough Christian to, to feed that bit of information back into the conversation. You're not. You're not. You're not as clever as you think you are. You're not as mature as you think you are. You will not do that. None of us will do that. The only thing to me that is more surprising by our tendency, uh, than our tendency to forget about God's sovereignty is God's faithfulness to remind us about his sovereignty. You need to be reminded about God's sovereignty. You people, you talk radio people, you know who you are. You're probably carrying, for heaven's sake. Uh, you talk radio people need to know that, that you listen to this and you need to take a moment and tell yourself, and I'm going to tell you right now, and you need to tell yourself, and God is sovereign over all of this. Whoever we're talking about, whichever political leader we're talking about, whichever problem in the world we're talking about, we need to remember that God is sovereign over the sovereigns. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Those 
kings of the earth were gathered together against Jesus to do exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. No more and no less. There's this beautiful moment. It's kind of a disturbingly beautiful moment in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Honestly, I think the idea in Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king that ever was. I think that seems to be the message communicated in the book of Daniel. And he's having these visions. He's having these dreams. And he he demands that someone not only interpret his dreams, but actually tell him what his dreams were, which I love. I love that. That's that's a... That's a drain the swamp moment right there. He's, he's cutting through all the, all the junk and saying, not only do I want you to tell me, you know, the, the, the interpretation, I want you to tell me what I dream so that you can't just make up some random interpretation. Let's see if you really have insight and power. No one can tell him. And so Nebuchadnezzar is at the point where he's like, I'm just going to kill all of the wise men in my kingdom because they're worthless. They're useless. They can't, they can't help me with this basic problem. And so he goes out to kill all of these wise men. Some of those wise men are Jewish. One man in particular named Daniel. They're about to kill him. And Daniel's like, could I ask why I'm about to be killed? They tell him the story. Daniel says, let's, Daniel says, I can, I can interpret that. I can, I can tell him what he dreamed. I can give him the interpretation. And then Daniel goes to his friend and says, pray. Ask God to give me the wisdom. Otherwise we're all dead. Daniel is working his way through these visions and gets to the point where he, he affirms Nebuchadnezzar's power, he affirms Nebuchadnezzar's kingship, but then he gets to the point and he says, one of the dreams you've had is detailing your fall from power, God's humiliation of you. And it goes into this moment where, where Nebuchadnezzar is, he becomes a beast. He becomes, he, he becomes like not a man anymore, not even, not a king, not even a man. He becomes this animal and, and, and he actually flees away from his court. He's driven out by this spirit inside of him. And he lives as like a creature in the world. Like he's, he talks about him being wet from the dew. And his fingernails are really long. He's got these claws. He's just this animal roaming around. He's humiliated. He's nothing. He's, he's driven by his passions. He's, he's become an animalistic creature driven by, by his 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 debased humanity, if you will. God's saying, this is what you are apart from me, right? And then God wakes him up. And this most powerful king that ever lived, listen to what he says. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar says this, at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven 
for all of his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God is sovereign over the sovereigns. He is absolutely in control of those who claim they're in control. I was praying this morning and I was thinking, you know, we have wasted all of our power language on things that are not powerful. We've wasted all these. We're so limited in our language. We've wasted the word king on someone who's not really very kingly. We've, we've, we've wasted the word leader on someone who doesn't really have the ability to lead. And then we go to describe God and we only have these words that we've already wasted on things that aren't really powerful and aren't really leading and aren't really loving. It's like, how do we describe God? The danger is, is that we begin to say that God is like a king, only more kingly. That God is the best king. Oh, friends, it's far more majestic than that. God is not simply the most powerful king. He is the one who holds all of the power of the kings. God is not the top. God is the only. He stands alone. He is unique. He is a ruler without rivals. Now, that's helpful and encouraging to be reminded that God is sovereign over the sovereigns. But maybe in our society, it's better to be reminded also that God is sovereign over the social mob. God is sovereign over the sovereigns, but God is also sovereign over the social mob. Look back in Acts four twenty six. They're reciting the, the, uh, the events that took place and the trial of Jesus. And they say, the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. In this city, we're gathered together your holy, against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, what do they mean by the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel? Who are those guys? Well, if you look back at Luke 23, you'll see in verse 13, Pilate calls together the chief priests and the rulers, and then it just says the people and the people. And as you work your way through Luke 23, you'll you'll see this phrase come up again and again, this group of people, this mob emerging. And and, and honestly, it's, it's their voice, not Herod's, not Pilate's, certainly not the Sanhedrin. It's the voice of the mob that eventually prevails. You know, Pilate's actually arguing with them, saying he's innocent. And it says they cried out together. They kept shouting at the very end of that section. It says uh, Jesus, Pilate delivered Jesus over to the people's will. I'm actually not very scared of Donald Trump or Barack Obama or even Kim Jong-un. I'm afraid of the mob, not the Al Capone mob, the social media harassed sheep without a shepherd group of unreasonable people. Uh, those are, those, that's, that's to me is far more scary than an individual with a button or another individual with a bigger button. A group of people that descend on a good, on a blessing like locusts, and within seconds eat it away, and they don't have any idea what just happened. That's a big concern for me. That's, if I was going to be anxious about something, it wouldn't be about the, the people that are in charge. It would be about the demos, the people, the people that can so easily be whipped up and stirred into just idiocy. 
in the book of John, there's a moment where Jesus is on the high. Uh, he's, he's up in the poles. And the people are just loving him. And it says, but he did not entrust himself to them. For he knew what was in the heart of men. Friends, you need to be reminded, I need to be reminded that God is not only sovereign over the sovereigns, but God is sovereign over the social mob. Over, the, over, the, over society, over this nameless, faceless, locust-like descending that we see happen throughout history. God's sovereign over that too. Even that, the social mob had no power over God's plan and God's hand. Even that, it's, it's, I, think it's, I think it's conceptually easier to imagine God in charge of a person, right? Directing a person as a king, like the water and a river of his hand. I think it's easier conceptually to imagine that than to imagine God aligning the crazy and contradictory plans of a mob to accomplish his will. But that's exactly what we see happening. God aligned even that chaos to accomplish his will. So he's sovereign over the sovereigns. He's sovereign over society, but he's also sovereign over the the cycles of history. Uh, Acts 4 is a repeat of Luke 23. So Acts 4 is a repeat of Jesus' trial, which is a repeat of Psalm 2, in which David cries out, why do the nations rage? This is a thousand years before Jesus' trial. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. This is David writing a thousand years before the trial of Jesus about this tendency of the nations, the kings of the earth, to conspire together to break the bonds of God off of their, off of their, off of their kingdoms, off of their individuals, off of their sexual appetites, and so on and so forth. They conspire together to cut the cords away. And it says in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your your possession. So David wrote this a thousand years prior because he was experiencing the nations conspiring against God's plan for his life. And then Jesus experiences it again. And then shortly thereafter, the disciples experience it again. Friends, it's all cyclical. We all will go through, the church will go through seasons of summer, seasons of fall, seasons of winter, seasons of spring. We will go through seasons where we're high in the poles. We'll go through seasons where we're low in the poles. We'll go through seasons where we're left alone. We'll go through seasons where we can't bake a cake to save our lives. We'll go through all kinds of seasons. Sometimes they'll love us, sometimes they'll hate us, and God's sovereign over it all. And he's accomplishing his purposes in every one of those seasons and cycles. There is nothing new under the sun. 
There's the light and there's the darkness. And the darkness does not want anything to do with the light because their deeds are evil. And God's sovereign over that. Not only is God sovereign over all of that, but he's also sovereign over sin. It's a simple but important point to make. The enemies of God, in in the crucifixion of Jesus, the enemies of God took their best shot. They took their best shot. They did their most clever scheming, their most, most pointed, intentional sinning. And all they could do was push the plan of God forward. You know, years ago, uh, many years ago, I told my dad that there was a bully at our bus stop just up the, up the street from our house. And I said, Dad, you know, this, he, just, he, he picks on me, but he really picks on my little brother. And he, he's just mean and just terrible. And, uh, and his dad was a well-known guy in our city. And my dad said, well, sounds like you need to fight, you need to fight him. Wouldn't hear that today, but <laughs> my dad says, you need, I think you need to punch him. He's like, here's the, here's the deal. Uh, next time he's mouthing off, this is, my dad's a humble, meek man. Uh, next time he's mouthing off, make sure you punch him and punch him in the eye or the nose. That way he'll wear this black eye around for, 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 for weeks afterward. And everyone will ask him, where did you get this black eye? And he said, now you go to your room and you practice throwing a punch. So I did. I, I went to my room. I practiced throwing a punch. A couple weeks went by. I felt like I was, had gone through the full, um, the full karate kid cycle. Uh, I waxed his car and sanded the deck and painted the fence. And, uh, and I was just hoping, you know, at this point, hoping that at the bus stop, this kid would start picking on my little brother or something like that. And sure enough, it, it happened. And it was like time slowed down. And I threw this perfect punch right into his left eye and it just closed up immediately and he shut up immediately that was that was the end of this guy's bullying days i knew this kid all the way through high school is not not a bully you know good guy but he wore that black eye for at least a month at school and everybody in fourth grade was Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? And he had to be constantly reminded that he got that from being a bully. Friends, the enemy took their best shot and and they were utterly defeated when Jesus emerged from the tomb victorious. And they will wear that until they are entirely destroyed. They will own that mortal wound. They will walk around with that mortal wound, staring back at them and be reminded over and over that Satan and sin took their best shot and they did not prevail against the Lord's anointed because God is sovereign over Satan and sin. God is also sovereign over signs. As these disciples are praying and and reveling in God's sovereignty. It's not just enough. They say it's not just enough that you rose Jesus from the dead. You're in charge of everything. You're in charge of people who are crippled. You're in charge of people who are bound in sin. And they say, now, Lord, look upon their threats. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit. 
a natural outworking of believing that God is sovereign is to believe and ask and seek that God radically change the way things are. And they just say to the Lord, reach out your hand and perform signs and wonders to confirm your sovereign saving word in the world. And you know, one of the signs, speaking of enemies walking around with black eyes, one of the signs the Bible predicts is the most powerful is the testimony of the saints. In Revelation 12, that's, that's part of the way that the people of God overcome the enemy by the power of the blood of the Lamb and by the power of their testimonies. And so one of the signs that we will just stick in the face of uncertainty, stick in the face of doubt, stick in the face of anxiety, one of the signs we will show them over and over again is we have been changed. And we are being changed. And we will continue to be changed. One of the most undeniable signs of God's saving sovereignty is lives being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And friends, there there are moments in time, I totally get this, where your life hasn't been changed. Well, let me just tell you, stop staring at your own belly button and go talk to the people of God. Someone you know is being changed right now. And if you will walk in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will see the vindication of God's glory at work in someone's life. And you begin to get this confidence about you. that says, God of the universe is sovereign and he's at work. Maybe, maybe I can't see his work in me, but I can see his work. Verse 13 in chapter 4 in Acts. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. God is sovereign over sin. God is sovereign over signs. Finally this. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. This is really all that matters in the end. Does God waste suffering? Did you know there's only really two kinds of suffering? I was thinking about this this week. There's only two kinds of suffering. There's wasted suffering, and then there's working suffering. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as wasted suffering in your life. There's no such thing as wasted suffering. Every drop of blood, sweat, and tears spilled by the people of God will work for the redemption, the glory of the people of God. There's no such thing as wasted suffering if you're His. It's all working suffering. And these two men, Peter and John, having sat through this evening of uncertainty in the cell, emerging in boldness and clarity, and honestly in circumstantial triumph this one time, they had just seen Jesus gored. Right? Just just everything possibly, everything you can imagine that's disgusting was just kind of present on this. They're, they're naked, beaten, broken, pierced, bloodied, beard pulled, back plowed Savior. And he emerged from the tomb in victory with an appetite.
with courage, with confidence, with the Holy Spirit, and ascended to rule in power at the right hand of God. God is sovereign over your suffering. There isn't a little, tiny, itty-bitty bit of your suffering, if you're his, that is wasted. It is all working. It is all working. It is all being put to work. You may not see where it's being put to work. And honestly, it may not be being put to work in you. Because God loves you. He just doesn't love only you. But every bit of suffering you experience is being put to work. Now, what do you do with this swagger, this confidence in God's sovereignty? That's the basic question, right? What do you do with God's sovereignty? Well, I, I delight in telling you what God does with his own sovereignty, right? I, I really delighted in, in telling you this last week. What does God do with all of this power? He gives us his son. He, what does God do with his ability to orchestrate history and to rule over kings and even rule over the mob? What does God do with this incredible power? He orchestrates the death of Jesus to be your redemption from your sin while you're his enemy. He uses all of his sovereign power to work your redemption at his own expense. That's just delightful, right? This is glorious. But I might throw a punch real quick and ask you this. So God uses his sovereignty to save people. Uh, dear Reformed brothers and sisters, does your understanding of the sovereignty of God lead you to go and seek and save? Does your understanding of God's sovereignty push you out into the world to make disciples? Does your understanding of sovereignty lead you into gospel sharing, bold, confident, risk-taking gospel sharing? There is, in fact, no biblical contradiction between the sovereignty of God and evangelism. In fact, if you listen to verse 28, you'll see just the opposite. They say to do whatever. They're talking about, uh, talking about the rulers, and they pray. Uh, that, that, that they gathered, they were, they're praying to God. They gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. That's a really big word right there, predestined. Very, very reformed, very powerful sovereignty of God word, right? Speaking of God's sovereignty, your plan had predestined to take place. Now, what do they do with that information? What do they do with the knowledge of God's sovereignty? And now, O oh Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in boldness. Irrefutable proof that people who actually understand the sovereignty of God turn that into actively seeking to speak the gospel to other people. There's no, there's no disconnect between their understanding of the sovereignty of God and their desire to speak the word in boldness. In fact, their desire to speak the word in boldness flows out of their understanding of God's sovereignty. I want you, of course, to apply the sovereignty of God to your own anxiety. Of course I want that. But I'll tell you point blank, that application doesn't look like what most people think it looks like. 
How do you apply the sovereignty of God to your own anxiety? Again, divert thine eyes from thy belly button and go out into the world as confident people who are more than conquerors and be disciples of Jesus, following Jesus into the world as he seeks and saves the lost. The cure to anxiety is to step forth in faith into the world with boldness and speak the word of God in confidence. You will not find the cure to anxiety in here. It's out there. It's up there, out there. Let's pray. Lord, apply your word to our hearts this morning. I pray for those who are in this moment feel like they're sitting in darkness and in uncertainty. Father, give them the faith to see. There's no such thing as uncertainty in your mind. You've got it all figured out. You've got it all planned. You're sovereign over all of it. There, there are no unknowns. And what you've done with that incredible power that we really don't have words to describe is you've worked our redemption. <laughs> so why would we worry? Why would we shrink back? Why would we honestly view ourselves as somehow second-class citizens that are always... Always expecting to have difficulty and opposition. Always shrinking back from it. Why would we run away from suffering? Why would we run away from risk? You've used all of those things to work redemption over and over and over again. Lord, may you're just absolute. The kind of confidence that provokes laughter at the kings of the earth conspiring together. The kind of confidence that provokes laughter at seeing the most powerful forces in the universe, try to upend the sun. Give us that confidence, Lord. Give us that godly boldness. Fill our hearts, Lord, with faith in your sovereign power over all things. We need only look around and see you're working in our fellowship. We only need to to see, God, just the number of times you're redeeming and saving and sanctifying in our midst. God, stir our hearts with Fill our hearts with boldness and encourage us, Lord, to speak your word. Help us to see, God, that that's really the, the proof that we understand your sovereignty is that we will pivot from seeing your bigness and, and walk into this world with authority and boldness and declare your glory and your gospel. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for your gospel, for living and dying for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would love it if today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you would come to this table and partake of this bread and this cup as a clear reminder that God's going to win, that God has won, that He is sovereign over all things. That you would take this not as a, 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 a mourning event, but as a celebratory event, event where you lift up the cup and say, I will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And until that day, we know he's absolutely sovereign in charge of everything. So come and partake of this feast today 
with a glad heart in God's sovereignty.